This is an audio sermon recorded at Highway 71 Church of Christ in Alma, Arkansas. We are Christians seeking to worship God in spirit and in truth. We would love for you to worship with us at 1030 on Sunday mornings at 1808 Highway 71 North in Alma, Arkansas. It's wonderful to be here this morning, very thankful uh, for the opportunity to stand before you and share a study of God's Word. Before I want to get going, I I want to say to the congregation on both behalf of David and I how thankful we are to you to uh, allow us to come and join in your labors here in this community. And it's our desire and our prayer that as we come alongside and work alongside you and work with you, that the time we spend together will be a blessing to you, be a blessing to the the community as as we labor together. This morning we're going to be spending our time uh, looking at Timothy and Titus here regarding the uh, qualities, if you will, of an elder. And we're going to look at at that idea. If you recall last time uh, we were able to be with you, David spoke and talked about a process, an approach to uh, putting a congregation through the uh, process of determining whether that congregation was ready to have elders and there were men present. We talked about the voice of the congregation, the voice of existing leadership, and uh, the voice of the evangelist working together. David pictured for us a, a three-legged stool and working together that we can produce in that and a positive result. And so we're going to talk a little bit more specifically about that today, looking into those pictures and those qualifications. And I will use the word qualification, uh, but I don't like the word qualification sometimes. And I'll tell you why is oftentimes when we look at these and call them qualifications, what we're doing is looking at them as disqualifications. This morning we're going to try to put a picture together that shows a picture of a man's character. But before we jump into that, I want to lay a, a, go through a couple of things uh, that are kind of fundamental to looking at this process and going through the process. And to begin with is this idea of us, what our ultimate goal here is. And that ultimate goal is, is that working? I don't think I've got it turned on. We'll just do the old-fashioned way and go that way. For some reason, it didn't want to work with me, Clint. I'll let you play with that. At the end of the day, what we're really about in this process is not to come in and to find men that we can elevate, find families that we can lift up and say that these are more important than others, that these are better. We're not about a process of, of taking the vote voice away from other members so that they're silenced. The ultimate goal in this process is to glorify God. And if you'll look in passages such as Titus chapter 1 and verse 5 here, the evangelist is told to go into this island of Crete and to ordain elders in every city. And he's told he's to set things in order and appoint, uh, set things in order that are wanting and ordain elders. And what I want us to understand is that congregation can exist without elders, but that God's desire, that God's ultimate goal that he's shown us multiple times throughout the scriptures is that every congregation would be overseen and be watched by a group of elders, if you will, a, a a presbytery and a congregation that doesn't have that is lacking it hasn't been brought to maturity and so to glorify God in this work in this effort what we're looking to do is not to elevate men but to glorify God by bringing the congregation to maturity that God desires and so we need to keep that focus in mind as we go through this process that we're seeking to glorify God and I want to emphasize again that what we're doing is a process not a promise of ordination 
that what we're doing here is not committing with preconceived ideas and saying we already know who we want to put in as elders, but that we're going through a process to examine the congregation, to test the congregation, to look at these qualities that we're about to, to talk about this morning and apply them to congregation. And if there are men here that are qualified at that point, then we would move toward an ordination. But we're not looking to start off and go, hey, we've come to do this work so that we can ordain somebody. That's not the process. The process is to put the congregation through those steps, if you will. And as we do this, I want all of us to keep in mind the serious nature of this work. 1 Timothy 5 and verse 22, the Apostle Paul by the hand of God, by the hand of the Apostle Paul, tells Timothy here, lay hands suddenly on no man, neither be partaker of other men's sin, keep thyself pure. And I believe that this is specifically in relation to this work of setting men aside into this office that he tells him to lay hands on no man suddenly. That the idea is that this isn't a rapid decision that needs to be made. It's a thorough decision. And it's a thorough decision that needs to involve all parts of the congregation. All those voices that we talked about in that last lesson coming together and taking the seriousness of it. When we study the book of Acts and we look at passages like Acts chapter 13 where we read of Paul and Barnabas ordaining elders. It tells us that they did so with prayer and fasting. Kind of an indication that, that this is a pretty important decision. And I want us all to recognize that a decision to place elders in this congregation is a decision that will reverberate for generations. These young ones sitting here today, even the little ones, will feel the impact and it will have an impact on how they grow up in Christ. It will have an impact on their relationship with the church. And so making a good decision here is vitally important because a bad decision can have just as much of an impact on them in future generations. And so we want to strive to make a God-honoring decision, a decision that glorifies God and not any individual. And lastly, before we jump into these qualifications, I want to mention the idea of peace and unity, the importance of that. Don't care how talented a congregation is, don't care how smart a congregation is, but a congregation lacking peace and unity is a congregation that's setting itself up for future disaster, future divisions, future splits, future heartaches. And certainly that's true as a, in a general sense, but it's also very specifically true as we talk about this effort to see if there are men that are qualified to serve in that office of elder, in that office of deacon. And so we need to, throughout this process, all be in aware of the importance and be the kind of individuals that will seek peace. In 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 10, the Bible says, For he that will love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips that they should speak no guile. Let him eschew evil and let him seek peace and ensue it. I love this passage as it talks about uh, seeking peace because it doesn't just say, hey, go, go try to find peace. Go seek peace. It takes it a step further and says ensue peace. And it uses the same Greek word here in Romans 14 and 19 when it tells us to follow after the things which make for peace. Though that word there, ensue and follow after, is also used in other places in your New Testament and it's translated as persecute. The same effort and the same energy that we think of when we think of Christians being persecuted or another group persecuting them, the effort that they would put forth, that's the same effort that God is telling you and I not just to seek peace, but to persecute it, to seek after it, to hunt it down, to not let it out of our sights. Persecute peace. 
And as we go through this process uh, today and, and, and moving forward, we want to remind you peace is pivotal to the success of this work. It's pivotal to the success of this congregation. And so at every turn, we're going to be looking for and seeking and pursuing and persecuting peace throughout this process. Now, having said all those kind of, if you will, housekeeping type of items, let's jump in now and look here at Timothy and Titus and these traits that are presented to you and I. And I'll just have both of these that I want us to read through here first. He begins in 1 Timothy chapter 3. He says, this is a true saying. If a man desires the office of a bishop, he desires a good work. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, vigilant, sober, of good behavior, given to hospitality, apt to teach, not given to wine, no striker, not greedy of filthy lucre, but patient, not a brawler, not covetous, one that, ha one that ruleth well his house, having his children in subjection with all gravity. For if a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, lest being lifted up with pride, he fall in the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must have a good report of them which are without, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. So here in Timothy, we're given a picture, if you will, of the character of this man. Titus adds to that and has a lot of the same statements, but there's a few different ones. But we want to look at here in Titus chapter 1, we read verse 5. He goes on from there in verse 6 and says, If any be blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children not accused of right unruly, for a bishop must be blameless, the steward of God, not self-willed, not soon angry, not given to wine, no striker, not given to filthy lucre, but a lover of hospitality, a lover of good men, sober, just, holy, temperate, holding fast the faithful word that has been taught that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and to convince the gainsayer. And we could take these and, and isolate them and look at them individually uh, as unrelated to all the rest. But what we want to do is recognize that each and every one of these is important. We can't lower the standard on this one and, and hold a higher standard on another one. But each one of them has value and has importance. But what they're trying to do is not give us a checklist necessarily to go down, but to put together in a picture that paints a picture of a man's character. And we're going to look at each one of them, but recognize that as we do, they fit into an overall picture that describes a character of an individual. And so in looking at it that way, what we're able to do is we look at some of these and try to understand, well, what does it really mean that a man is a lover of hospitality? Or that he is an individual that's not given to filthy lucre or no striker? Does that mean he could have never in his life ever been mad? Or what we're actually asking from the biblical perspective is, is no striker a description of his character? Not that he's ever not stricken, that he's never done anything like that, but that is this the character of the man? And that's what we're wanting to look at. And to do that, we're going to try to take these and put them into some groups that have an overarching heading. And we're just going to jump right into uh, the ones that seem to be most controversial a lot of times and talk about a man's family. And he gives us a couple of statements in here that want us to examine a man's family. And, and I will tell you that from my perspective that, that these are the foundation of everything else that he's talking about in the character. He says in the text himself, if a man doesn't know how to rule his house, how shall he take care of the church of God? And so if we really want to look at what kind of elders we're talking about, look at a man in his home. 
Look how he treats his wife. Look how he raises his children. The way that he behaves in that. Because that's going to tell you exactly the kind of elder that he is. If he's a man that's a dictator in his home that, that pounds the table and expects everybody to jump when he says jump, guess what kind of elder he'll be to the church? That same picture. If he's a man that in his, home, in his own home is kind of run over and the wife or the children kind of run the home, guess what kind of elder he'll be to the church? He'll be an elder that gets run over. And so that's the picture when we really break it down and are focusing on this. We want to look closely at a man's family. And he gives us a couple of statements here. And he says, number one, he needs to be the husband of one wife. And a lot of time and a lot of debate has been spent in time past arguing this. If it's talking about polygamy, is it talking about a man who was widowed and then remarried? Is it counting the number of marriages he's had? And I want to say that all of those things may factor into this idea, but what it really means is someone who is a one-woman man. And I'll tell you, holding it to the standard of an individual that's a one-woman man is a much higher standard to look at than to try to count total number of marriages and all these things. Now, I'm not saying that wouldn't be part of the questions that we would look at, but if a man has been remarried for whatever reasons, that doesn't automatically disqualify him, if you will, from this meeting this standard that's being set here. You see, a man could actually have only been married one time in his entire life never had a divorce, never been widowed, only one wife, and still not be a one-woman man. What a one-woman man is, is a man that is committed to his wife, that he doesn't have a wandering eye, that he's not flirtatious, that he's not looking in other places, but he is completely and totally committed to his wife. He is a one-woman man. And I think this is an important trait to look at and to think about. Why does God want a man that is a one-woman man to be the elder? Why is this a trait that God is putting forth? And I'll tell you what I believe on that is God is saying look at a man's ability to make a commitment and follow through and hang on to it. If he's got a wandering eye, if he's flirtatious, if he's all those things, that says a lot about his ability and his own self on his loyalty to his number one relationship on this earth, and that's his wife. And if he can't be loyal there, how's he going to be loyal and committed to serving the church? He won't be. He'll be easily distracted with other things that will pull his attention away, and he won't be the shepherd to the sheep that God wants him to be. The idea here is a much higher standard than just divorce and remarriage, just polygamy. I'm not saying those wouldn't raise a red flag if we're looking at someone that has experienced those things that we wouldn't stop and say, hey, we need to dig deeper and look into and figure out what went on here. But my point is, is this is a much higher standard. And it's a consistent standard that we see. I want you to notice in 1 Timothy chapter 5 here, he talks about a different topic but uses a similar Greek phrase here in 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 9 when he's talking about the widows. And he says of these widows that they're not to be taken in the number under 60 years old or threescore years old, having been the wife of one man. Now this phrase, wife of one man, is the exact same phrase as husband of one wife with the gender switched. One has the female at the front, one has the male at the front, etc., etc. Exact same phrase. And he's not saying here that a widow can't be cared for by the church if she's had more than one husband in her life. In fact, that 
contradicts the entire context of what he's going to go on and say. He says, first off, that these widows that don't have anybody else to take care of need to be taken care of by the church. And he gives some qualifications, or you will, characters to look for uh, of these women that can be taken care of by the church, one of them being a wife of one man. Well, what does that actually mean? He goes on a little bit later in verse 11, and he says, listen, now if there's these younger widows, widows younger than 60, Here's what I counsel them to do is to get married, to bear children. And he says if these younger widows don't do that, they end up refusing uh, for when they grow, pardon me, have begun to, to wax wanton against Christ, they will marry. And he's saying, listen, these younger widows, they need to go out there and marry, bear children, guide the house. In other words, they need to go ahead and get married. Now I want you to think about this. If there's a young widow, for whatever reason, loses her husband, becomes a widow, and she comes to church and says, what should I do? God's counsel is, well, you're a young woman. You need to remarry and, and start a family. Okay, she does that. And then later on in life, she stays faithful to that husband. He lives and, and he dies and she's a widow for the second time. And there's no one to take care of her. And she comes to church in need. Are we going to look at it and go, sorry, you had two husbands. You weren't the wife of one husband. Therefore, we can't take care of you. Is that really the picture of the gospel? She would look at you and go, wait a second, I followed the counsel you gave me. I remarried like you told me, and now you're telling me I don't qualify as the wife of one husband. That doesn't make sense. The standard is the same in both places. It's not looking at necessarily total number of marriages. It's talking about the commitment and whether they fulfilled their role in that marriage. And that's the standard we need to be looking at as we examine and look for a man or men that can serve as elders is what kind of commitment do they have to their role in that marriage? Are they actually the kind of husband that is ruling well his family? That he's an example of a godly husband and a godly father? Is he the husband that he's supposed to be leading his wife to grow spiritually? You husbands want a hard question to answer. I'll give you a hard question to answer about your own leadership and ask yourself this question. Is my wife a better Christian today because of my leadership or in spite of my leadership? Is she where she's at spiritually because of the things I did or in spite of the things that I've done as a husband? You see, that's the standard God wants us to look at. How does this man in his relationship on this earth, in his basic, most important earthly relationship, his wife, how does he lead her? Is he the head over her that he's supposed to be strengthening her, developing her, bringing her to spiritual maturity, providing for her the needs that God said he was supposed to provide? Is he doing that in his home? Is he doing that not only uh, as a show for the rest of the church, but he's sincerely that man that's committed to developing his wife. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 23 and verse 25, I've only got one of them up here, but the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he's the savior of the body. This idea that we're looking at, when we look at does he rule well his family, is he a one-woman man, we're asking this question, what kind of leader is he to his wife? How has he strengthened her? How has he developed her? Is he committed to her? And he goes on and, and, and talks not just about the wife and this responsibility, but also the children, the whole idea of ruling the family well. And we talked earlier, mentioned earlier about the kind of father that he was in the home. 
becomes important. We read there that he's to have faithful children. What does that phrase really mean? Sometimes we look at that and we replace the word faithful with believing. And, and that word faithful can mean believing. It's used that way in certain passages. It's translated that way. I would tell you in the context when you put both the having faithful children and you add to that not accused of right or unruly and you add to that Timothy or Titus' statement there about bringing his children along that they're in subjection to him. What we're looking at is the father's leadership of the children and are they faithful not to God but to him. And I want to emphasize something about that. Sometimes we get real confused when we talk about bringing up children. And if you've been in the church for any length of time, you, if you're honest with yourself, will look around and say, you know, there's some people that grew up in the church and stayed faithful in church in spite of their parents not teaching it. There are people that I can point you to who as young children were not taught by the, in the home. Mom and dad didn't teach them. They had friends. They had maybe other family. They had other individuals in the church that reached out to them and held on to them and helped teach them the truth and develop them to maturity. But it wasn't mom and it wasn't dad that did it. Likewise, you and I can point to individuals that you and I know that grew up in the church that mom and dad did the work of teaching. They taught them the Bible. They took them to church. They involved them. They, they raised them by the standard of God. And when those children get older and get out on their own, sometimes they still make that decision to walk away. And we want to look at that and go, well, that one father whose kids walked away, he's not qualified to be an elder, but this man who did nothing because his kids are still in the church, he must be qualified to be an elder. And I'll tell you, we're missing the standard that God set. God's talking about a man's ability and his willingness to get in there and do the work. In Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 1, it tells us, Ye fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. You know, God has never held anybody responsible for the decisions other people make. He's told you and I to go preach the gospel, hasn't He? He's told us to spread the seed, to water it. I want to know, has He ever told you now you're going to be responsible if you preach the Gospel if somebody rejects it, that's all on you. And he doesn't say that, does He? He says your job is to teach. Your job is to preach, to plant, and to water. And I would tell you the same principle is what we're looking at here in this idea that He's talking about. That this husband, this father's responsibility that we want to look at is... Does he lead his children? Does he teach them? Does he engage God's Word? And how do you test that? I'll be honest with you. When you're looking at that, it's an awful lot easier to examine that trait when the children are still under his rule and still under his house. We get to see a picture day to day of his older children. How has he ruled them? How has he guided them? Sometimes we want to wait until this man's children are grown and, and off and you know, married and have kids of their own and say, well, you know, he, he, he did a good job way back here. And I'll tell you, sometimes it's hard to see that picture. What really happened back here when the children were younger? What kind of father was he to them? Notice, if you will, here in Titus, he says the children are not to be accused of right and really, but the children are to be in subjection with all gravity. This is pointing to his relationship. And if you just step back and look at these statements about husband of one wife, leading his home, being over his children and guiding them, bringing them up so that they're not accused of right or unruly, what we're really looking at is, is is there a man among you 
who has lived as the father and husband that God has called him to? Has he done the work in his home to be an example of a godly father, to be a pattern of a godly husband that brings them together? You know that word faithful, as we talked about, just means trusty, uh, trustworthy, subject, uh, believe, faithful, and subjection means insubordination. And so what we're looking at is the kind of leadership that he provided in his home. And as I've already said, I'm going to say again, whatever leadership he provides in the home will be the kind of leader he will be to the church. And so when we take all these family statements and put them together, what we're really looking for is someone who's a one-woman man that's an example of a godly husband and a godly father. That's what those statements are really about. That's the character we're trying to, to ferret out and figure out, does this man have that character? He goes on, and there are several other statements, and probably the biggest area that I'm going to lump several of these together in is this idea of morals. And a lot of statements that he talks about in morals can kind of be broken, in my mind, into some subdivisions. But as we talk about these morals, I want to start off with a statement that he made in both of those, and that's about being blameless. And being blameless is about someone who whose life reflects God's standards, not someone whose life is perfect. What it really means to be blameless is someone who's above reproach, who no fault can be laid at their feet. That doesn't mean they've not made a mistake, they've not fallen short, they've not committed sin, but that they've addressed that sin. I want you to think about this from a very practical application. If, if we could have a man who was perfect to rule over this congregation and never had a fault, would he be able to help someone who struggled? Probably not. Only Christ is able to do that as a perfect individual. But a man that's had fault in his life and knows how to repent of that and walk away from that and address that, he's going to be the elder that can lead a congregation, lead individual sheep, and how to fight those battles in their own life. So we're not looking for a faultless man, but we're looking for a man who's blameless, who's addressed their shortcomings, who's repented of them, who's changed their life, whose morals reflect the morals of Jesus Christ. Notice, if you will, here in Philippians 2 and verse 15, the Bible says that ye be blameless, talking to us as Christians. God's not calling us to perfection here. He's calling us to be blameless and harmless as the sons of God without rebuke in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, or per perverse nation among whom you shine as lights in the world. He's saying your life needs to stand out as different. That you're not like the rest of the world of you. And that's the same standard we're looking for in this eldership is someone whose life is blameless, not someone whose life is perfect, who no fault can be laid at their feet. That when we look at their life and we begin to, to examine the morality in their life, what we walk away and conclude is that this is a man who's in control of his flesh. His desires and his passions don't control him and lead him through life. But rather, he's in control of his flesh. Several statements that he makes point to this very idea when he says that he's not giving to wine. That means staying near to wine and carries this idea of addiction. And sometimes, here's where I, I don't like the idea of going, well, let's just isolate it and ask, is this man ever given to wine? But instead of looking at the character principle he's talking about here, he's talking about a man that has not control of his flesh that's addicted to some way to wine. And we might look at this guy and go, well, he's not addicted to wine, but he's addicted to heroin, so he meets this qualification. No! That misses the point completely. 
Is he in control? Are there things in this life that control his flesh and dictate to him how he's going to live? That's what an addiction is. It controls an individual and dictates them how they're going to live. And so God says, as you look for this man, these men to be the elders of your congregation, look for someone whose life, whose flesh is under his control through the power of God, who's not given to alcohol, who's not addicted, who's not, he says, covetous. And that really isn't just about he's greedy. It's about what's in his heart, what his passion is, what has his attention. If a man that claims to be a servant of God has a problem with covetousness, has a problem with greed, he's going to be a man whose heart's divided. He's not in control of his flesh. He's going to be lusting after those things that can make him money, that can make him successful, make him powerful, more so than his heart is surrendered to God. And so we're looking for this man whose flesh is brought under control. That he's not, not just not greedy, uh, but he's not also greedy of filthy lucre. That he's not taking shortcuts in life. That's really what being greedy of filthy lucre or ill-gotten gain, Ill, money or advancement through cutting corners, if you will, cheating here and there. That this isn't a man that's going to have that Machiavellian attitude that says, well, you know, the end justifies the means. As long as we accomplish this, it doesn't matter how we got there. Well, no, it does. Look in the Bible over and over. God says, it does matter how you got there. And I need leaders that will stand up and say, the path that we follow matters, that we're not cutting corners, that we're not taking shortcuts. We're going to do it God's way. That's a man whose heart is God's, a man who's not greedy of filthy lucre, a man who's not taking those shortcuts, a man who's in control of his temper, that he's not soon angry, he's not snappy or short-tempered. Now this doesn't mean, has, has Dane never had a bad day in his life where everything went wrong and I went over to visit him and he was in a bad mood and he just snapped at me? Well, he's not qualified because he snapped at me one time. no. It's about his character. Is it the character that he's in control of his flesh, that he's not a person who's always flying off the handle, that he's not a person that's snappy, that, that has an anger issue, but rather he controls, not that he never gets angry, but that he controls that. He is, as Ephesians tells us, he's been angry and sins not. That's what we're looking for. A man that's in control of his flesh, that he's not having that short temper, not a, a brawler. A brawler, he's the exact opposite of a peaceable person that's contentious, always looking to cause problems. Notice as we go through this list of knots here, how many times he's talking about a man's ability to control the fleshly impulses and the fleshly desires. One more that we could add to that, not pugnacious or not a striker, someone that's quarrelsome. These last two being someone it's always causing problems, always having to be right, always insisting their way and looking for a fight of some kind, whether it be physical, whether it be a word fight. He's just this person that can't control that has to win at any cost. That person's not in control of their flesh. And so as we begin to look at this character that we're painting, we we're looking for a man who is the example of a godly husband who's committed to his wife, a man who's a godly father that brings up his children and uses God's Word to guide them and to direct them, and a man who's in control of his flesh, that he's not controlled by his passions, rather he controls his passions. 
So that's the idea that we're looking at that Paul talked about here in 1 Corinthians 9 when he said, I keep my body, I keep under my body and bring it into subjection lest that by any means when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. That type of behavior, that type of character, a man who has brought his body into subjection. That's what we're looking for. The last area... I want us to point to, or well, kind of actually a, a second area under morals that I would say is not just control of his flesh, but that, what, that which goes right along with that is a disciplined life. That his life is brought under control. We see that it's not controlled by his flesh, and so what we should see, and a lot of these qualifications point to that, is a man whose flesh is under control because of discipline. Statements like of good behavior. That means he's, he's modest. Not just in his dress, but in his lifestyle. It's well-ordered. It's not out of control. He's not this guy that you're always talking to who's always going, man, I just can't believe everything's just crazy and, and I've got no control over what's happening in my life. Just constant turmoil. No, that's not of good behavior. That's a life that lacks discipline to bring order to the chaos. But instead, what we're looking for is not someone controlled by their flesh, but someone who is of good behavior, who has a well-ordered life, someone who has self-control or temperance, that is, that having power over self. You see how this relates directly to the opposite of not someone controlled by their flesh, but rather they're being controlled by God, by making decisions, by subjecting themselves to God, developing that fruit of the Spirit, self-control, that their life is well-ordered and maintained, that they're sober, sound in mind, discreet, if you will, serious-minded. This doesn't mean a man can never tell a joke. He can't crack up. He can't laugh. But what it does mean is when it's time to be serious, this is a guy that can get down to business and have that discipline to say, now's not the time to play. Now's the time to go to work. And has that discipline and control of his life to be that kind of person. That he's patient, that he's just, that he's righteous uh, or holy. As we put all these together, what you see is a picture here of a disciplined life. A life that is brought into subjection of Jesus Christ and says, You control my life. You lead me and I'm going to become the disciple you've called me to be. And I can be an example, a pattern of that. My flesh doesn't control me, but Lord, you control me. A man whose life is well ordered under Christ. And I think you look at those two uh, general areas of not controlled by his flesh, but rather as a disciplined life. And they complement one another and paint this picture of an individual whose character is all about Jesus Christ. Romans 6 and verse 16 says it this way. Know ye not to whom you obey, his servants you are, to whom you obey, whether of sin of death or obedience unto righteousness. God makes this basic statement for all of us to understand that you're in being controlled by somebody. You're a servant to somebody every day of your life, whether sin or obedience. And as we look at the character of a man that can serve as an elder, we're looking for a man whose character screams out over and over again that I am in, under obedience to righteousness, that I am a slave to Jesus Christ serving Him bringing about righteousness in my life. Uh, and it's not just doing this once or twice, but as we look at the morals, there are some statements in there that, that talk about this idea of it being a consistent pattern that happens over and over again. Number one, that he's a lover of good men. 
And what that means that he's fond of good, that he's a promoter of virtue. He's a guy that finds joy and promotes, that looks for the positive, that looks for solutions, that looks to find the right answer instead of a guy that's going, well, it's all lost. Let's just give up. Close the church doors. Sell the building. We don't need that kind of man as an elder. We need a man that's a lover of good men, that's fond of good, that's promoting that and has that kind of consistency that says, I'm going to control my flesh, I'm going to subject myself to Jesus Christ, and I'm going to consistently seek the good. It talks about there having a good report or a fair or honest record or witness, talking about how the world sees him. In other words, this isn't just about being this kind of person on Sundays and Wednesdays when the church gets together. It's about being this person to your core. That your neighbors see you this way. That your co-workers see you this way. That your interactions at the DMV or whatever uh, transportation department you have to have to go stand in line where you, you actually hate that. That your character is the same there. That the world sees you as a person that's in control of their flesh. A person that's disciplined and lives that life that's surrendered to God. Those two areas, morals and family, make up a, a large portion of the statements made about this man's character. But there are about five left that I believe can, we can put together in a group that talk about a, I'm going to jump ahead here, that talk about the traits that are related to an elder's work. His work ethic, his work skills that are directly, statements that directly tie to the work that he's being called to do. One of those is that he's vigilant, that he's watchful, that He's involved with the congregation and he has biblical wisdom to see what's coming down the road. That he's not just sitting back. He's not a person that's always caught off guard. He's not a person that's loosely involved with the congregation, but rather he's deeply involved so that he can provide that vigilance, that watchfulness to help keep the sheep together, that he can help be on guard against the wolves that are coming, the false doctrine that's coming, that he has that ability to pay attention to what's happening, that he's apt to teach. Now, this is one of those uh, places where I, I really dislike a lot of the modern translations on this translation because it translates that word apt as able. And I, I believe that misses the mark 100% because the word literally means skilled. And I get it. I understand it. If someone's skilled to do something, they're able. But in my mind, there's a huge difference between being able to do something and being skilled to do something. You see, if you come to my house for a meal and I'm the one that's cooking, I'm able to cook you a meal. I am. You probably won't die. You might get sick, but you probably won't die from eating my food. I'm able to cook food. You may not enjoy eating it. You may have to wash it down with a lot. I'm able, though. But if you come to my house and my wife cooks, now she's skilled at cooking. And I promise you, you'll notice a big difference between the food she prepares and the food I prepare. And that's the difference between able and skilled, at least in my little brain. And that's why I think it's important that we talk about a man's skill set here. He says that he's able to teach or that he's skilled in teaching, that he knows how to use God's Word. That he can take it and apply it to his life and he can take it and help other people make application to their life that through God's Word he can guide and direct. Not that he has a lot of wisdom in the ways of this world, but that he has a lot of wisdom in God's Word and is skilled in taking God's Word and applying it 
to parenting, applying it to marriages, applying it to growing and maturing in Christ, apply it to guiding and directing a congregation, that he's skilled in doing that, that he's not self-willed in his work, that says, listen, it's my way or the highway, that he's one that's willing to sit back and take counsel, that he listens, that he's not just looking to please himself, but he's looking to be a servant of the congregation. It's not about him. It's about bringing this flock to maturity. It's about growing and protecting this flock, knowing that one day I'll give an account for every one of these sheep. You see, a man that's all about himself doesn't care about the sheep. And God said, that's not my leader. That's not my elder. The one I want is one that cares about the sheep and is looking to serve them. And that he's given to hospitality. That he's willing, and that phrase means open home, and I, but I would, I would broaden that to say not just an open home, but an open life. That he's willing to bring you in and make you part of his life. That he's inviting you to be part of his family. And inviting you to open your life to be part of the family. That he opens the life of his, of his own family, of his own home, and tries to build that in the church. You know, one of the things... I could go on for a whole other sermon on this if you let me this morning. But one of the big things I think we, we struggle with at times is creating true family in a congregation. And not just being a group of people that gather on Sunday mornings and worship. We need men that will guide us and direct us into becoming a family. And that starts with them doing that themselves, opening their home, opening their lives, putting themselves at risk for the blessing of the sheep. That we need a man who's open in that way. And then lastly, one that's not a novice. That means he's not newly planted. He's not spiritually immature, but rather he's spiritually mature. And so when you look at these things, it's all about his ability to get in there and to labor for the Lord. A man who's honed his skills and knows how to help others grow spiritually. That he himself is spiritually mature. And so I hope you can see this morning that as we look at all of these things... We're talking about a man who's had some experience. A man that has some wisdom. Matt, uh, Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 14 says, But strong meat belongs to them that are full age, even those who by reason of use have exercised their senses to discern good and evil. He's one of these individuals that by reason of use has honed his skills and knows how to help grow and guide the flock. And when we put all these together, we get a picture, not just individual statements and individual qualifications, disqualifications that are unrelated, but they all come together and paint a picture of a character, of a man that we're seeking, a man that can be a blessing to the congregation. And that's a man who is a one-woman man that's an example of a godly husband and a godly father. He brings those traits to the church. He brings experience of being committed to something. He brings experience to guiding and purposeful direction under the Lord to bring people to maturity. Well, he's a man whose life reflects God's standards and how he lives. That his life is one that's above reproach because he's not controlled by his passions, by his flesh. But rather his life is well ordered under Christ and he doesn't waver. Not that he never makes a mistake, but that he doesn't waver from that being in submission to Jesus Christ. A man who's spiritually mature and laboring for the Lord using his own skills to help others grow. That's a picture of character. Now, does that mean we can go in and discount any of those specific things that we talked about? Not, not on your life. 
Because you see, it's those specific things that reveal this kind of character. And if they're missing, then this character cannot be there. They're tied together. So it's not that we want to dismiss any of them, but it's that we want to put them together in a package that says this is the character of a man that God wants to lead a congregation to bless it, to serve it. An elder is not the most important member of the congregation. He's the most important servant of the congregation. He's the number one servant. There's an elder in Oklahoma City that, that I, I won't forget. Him showing his congregation that he was their servant. He didn't do it by standing up in the pulpit and waxing elegant with all of his knowledge. Very, very knowledgeable man on the Scriptures. He didn't do it by barking orders. I'll never forget, it was a youth meeting that they had there. And what they would do with the young people after the morning service is they would have different people staying in different homes do different assignments around the building. Some clean the bathroom, some prepare the lunch, some do this. And there was one crew that had to go around on their hands and knees with a spray bottle and the cloth and scrub out stains that had gotten on the floor. This elder taught those young people and a lot of other people that were watching what it meant to be an elder. Because every day, he grabbed the spray bottle and he got down on his knees and he crawled around the floor scrubbing out stains. He took the lowest job and said, I'm here to serve. That reveals the character of a man that says it's not about me, it's about God's flock that is this picture that God wants us to have. And that's what we're going to be searching for and that's what we're going to be testing for. The study is yours this morning. I hope that you'll take these things, that you'll go back and, and look at them again and, and examine them again. If you've got questions, i uh, love to visit with you about this. And I want to say here's the reason why we're doing this and starting off with the public teaching of these things. Because it's important that we come together and have a mutual understanding of what it is we're looking for. If I have one standard and you have a second standard, we're never going to be able to agree on whether a person's qualified. So it's important that we start here. And if you've got questions about that, we'd love to sit down and visit with you and study with you and talk with you about these, this picture of this man's character. But for now, the lesson is yours. Uh, pray that you'll take these things and study. And we've not spoken on first principles. We've not spoken on, on sin and conviction. I just want to say is before we offer an invitation song this morning, it's not my invitation and I don't believe it's the invitation of the congregation. But we serve a living God who can change lives. And if you need that power of Jesus Christ, if you need strength, if you need encouragement, if there's sin in your life that you're battling that you need His help with, if you've never obeyed the Gospel, if there's a spiritual need that Jesus Christ can meet this morning, we stand ready to be your servant and help you take your needs to Him that can meet them. We ask you to make that known by having a seat on either of these front pews as we stand now to sing this song. We hope you have enjoyed this message recorded at Highway 71 Church of Christ. If you have questions concerning this message or would like to set up a study, please call 479-647-2658. May God bless you.